0: Welcome, fellow Crimatics, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Casey. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get our fix.
1: Welcome back, addicts. This week, I'm going to be totally honest with you, is going to be a little bit crazy. We are drinking an iced tuxedo mocha, and we are taking it out to Nebraska. And not to talk about the farms or prairies, but to talk about Nico Jenkins. You may or may not have heard of Mr. Nico, but we got all the juicy details and disturbing facts from his life and his crimes. So join us this week, and we will talk about all of this craziness together. This week, we are shouting out Blaze H, Jessica P, and Crystal B. They have liked, commented, rated, shared, reviewed, or donated. So we want to thank you guys so much. We are so grateful for all the support that you have been giving us with our podcast, and we love you guys so much. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please donate, like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or on the World Wide Web at CrimeAddictsPodcast.com. On our website, Addicts, you'll find a spot where you can submit case recommendations and find some of our delicious coffee recipes. There's also a pretty cool donate button, and if you're an Amazon shopper like myself, go ahead and click our Amazon link. It will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items. to your cart and checkout. This process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. In
0: 1993 a 7-year-old boy showed up at Omaha's Highland Elementary School with a loaded 25 caliber handgun. He was briefly taken from his mother, which was the beginning of two decades in and out of group homes, the Douglas County Youth Detention Center, and eventually the state prison. Who was this little boy? His name is Nico Allen Jenkins, born on September 16, 1986 in Colorado to parents David A McGee and Lori Jenkins. But they moved to Nebraska when he was at a very young age. He had four sisters. His older, full sister is Sophia Jenkins. Then his younger, full sisters, Melanie and Erica Jenkins. And lastly, his youngest half-sister, Lori Sales. While his parents, David and Lori, had four children together, they were never married. David also had relations with Ida Levering, who was Lori's cousin, as their grandmothers were sisters. But both Lori and Ida report David was abusive and beat on them while they were pregnant. Nico Jenkins had a troubled life early on and was witness and victim to many traumatic events before the age of eight. According to Jenkins, the first time he heard voices in his head that he remembers was when he was five years old, and he didn't know what they were at the time. In fact, he said he was outside and heard the voices and thought they were coming from a garbage dumpster nearby, but discovered no one was there. He said he told his family, but they initially didn't believe him. His aunt had mental health diagnoses too, so she recognized it, and she and his mother Lori ended up being an advocate for him and tried to get him committed to get the help he needed. Jenkins was expelled from school numerous times for fighting, breaking windows, and unexcused absences. He had completely stopped attending school by 7th grade, but later got his GED while incarcerated. The first available mental health treatment records for Jenkins were at age 8 in the form of an inpatient psychiatric evaluation. This was carried out at the Methodist Richard Young Hospital and included details of trauma within the home, exposure to substance abuse, conduct abuse, antisocial personality disorders, and physical, emotional, and sexual violence. The hospital's records indicate that such events did occur and that his mother had even acknowledged some of these instances. It is also noted on the same records that Jenkins suffered night terrors, nightmares, and bedwetting due to the trauma and suspected abuse, which was happening in his home. While a patient at Methodist Richard Young Hospital, Jenkins' IQ was tested. His score indicated that he had a low average range for his age group. February 3, 1995 is the first recorded incidents of Jenkins indicating his intentions of self-harming behaviors related to stress and anxiety. He would have been eight years old at this time. Records from February 9, 1995 pertaining to Jenkins' initial admission to Methodist Richard Young Hospital indicate he reported hearing voices telling him to steal. It was later determined that these voices were from people he knew in real life and were only present when the people were with him in real life. This was put down to a misunderstanding on Jenkins' behalf as to what auditory hallucinations were. Dr. Jane Dahlke diagnosed Jenkins with oppositional defiant disorder, ADHD, and functional enuresis nocturnal. The times Jenkins did get to spend as a free adolescent, he got involved with gangs and began committing crimes starting at age 11. He also started to regularly carry weapons right around this same time. This criminal behavior ultimately led him to being incarcerated for long periods of time. At first, the preteen was sent to a group home in Papillion, and his actions soon escalated to violence. In 1998, he was kicked out of the home for repeatedly assaulting other children. A probation officer wrote, quote, the last incident occurred on February 26, 1998, when he used a clothes hanger to hit another minor child, leaving wit marks on the minor, end quote. Jenkins was then sent to the youth detention center and soon released to the care of his mother. But by the end of the year, the 12-year-old boy was back in the detention center for assaulting someone with a knife. Eventually, he had caused so much trouble and ran away so many times that his probation was revoked. In August 2001, he was sent to the Youth Rehabilitation and Treatment Center in Kearney, Nebraska. But one year later, he was back in Omaha, and soon he began threatening those around him. His father, David McGee, wrote in court documents that, quote, Nico Jenkins has threatened my life and pulled a sawed-off shotgun on me at my own home, end quote. Nebraska Department of Child Services, or NDCS, records show that before the age of 12, Jenkins already had multiple charges against him, including five theft-related charges, one arson charge, one weapon charge, and two charges of criminal mischief. At the age of 13, he was receiving treatment for substance misuse. He did not complete his juvenile probation, mainly due to persistent running away. NDCS records show that Jenkins was put in a few detention centers and group homes from the ages of 11 to 17. During this time, he also received seven more charges, including arson, assault, theft, unlawful absence, and habitual missing or runaway.
1: At the age of 15, he committed the crime of forcing people from their cars at gunpoint on two separate occasions. In one incident, he ordered a 21-year-old man out of his black Honda Civic and took off in it. In the second incident, he asked a 20-year-old woman for a ride. When she declined, he got into the back of her 1983 maroon Cadillac DeVille, brandished a shotgun, and told her to drive to 22nd Street and Grand Avenue. There, he ordered her out. He was arrested at the age of 16 and convicted at the age of 17 as an adult on two counts of robbery and two counts of used deadly weapon to commit a felony on October seventeenth, two 2003. The first count of robbery carried a sentence of four to five years concurrent to all charges. The first count of used deadly weapon to commit a felony carried a sentence of five years consecutive. The second count of robbery carried a sentence of five years consecutive. And the second count of used deadly weapon to commit a felony carried a sentence of two years consecutive. But the violin didn't end in prison. He was charged twice, once for assaulting a guard while on furlough at his grandmother's funeral and once for his part in a prison riot. He was convicted of one count of assault of a peace officer or DCS employee, third degree, and was sentenced to two to four years consecutive. This leaves us with a grand total sentence of 18 to 21 years. He began his sentence in juvenile detention. During his time at the juvenile facility, Jenkins received 13 misconduct reports, two of which pertained to violent offenses. One of those involved a riot situation on July 4, 2005, when he injured other inmates and evaded prison officers. He also was disciplined several times for his tattoo activities, attacking other inmates, gang activity, and fashioning weapons. Between November seventeenth and February twenty fifth, two 2006, Jenkins denied experiencing any major mental health issues while at the youth facility. A month leading up to Jenkins' transfer to the adult prison, he reported feeling stressed and having difficulty sleeping on a couple of occasions. He also denied any previous mental health concerns before being transferred to the adult facility in February 2006. During the initial psychology evaluation carried out by C. S. Jenkins attempted to present himself in a much better light than the reality, so the results of the evaluation were inconclusive, making them invalid. Early January 2007, Jenkins was moved to a restrictive housing following a report that he had been fighting. The report was later dismissed, however, During the time in restrictive housing, Jenkins claimed to experience, quote, deep stages of depression, having angry and sad thoughts, a sickness inside of him, and issues with his sanity. Upon leaving restrictive housing, Jenkins had the opportunity to talk to a mental health professional and claimed to feel much better after they had spoken. During February 2007, Jenkins was involved in two gang-related fights and was returned to restrictive housing until December 4, 2008. From February to October 2007, there were no reports from Jenkins regarding mental health concerns. However, after October 2007, he reported that upon release, he was intending to, quote, attack innocent people, end quote. Jenkins spoke of hearing the voices of gods and that this started to increase around 2007. Records, however, indicate that this was closer to 2009, During September 2008, it was suspected that Jenkins was suffering gang-related paranoia after he complained that he may be a paranoid schizophrenic. He was found to have no major mental disorder at the time by the Mental Illness Review Team. In November 2008, Jenkins received a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder and was prescribed Depakote. Treatment ceased after only four days due to Jenkins refusing the medication, By December 2008, it was reported that he was settling into the general population well with no indication of psychosis. Jenkins' thoughts were noted to be well-organized. On multiple occasions, Jenkins reported the desire to kill people upon release. Jenkins returned to restrictive housing after only being in general population for just over a month. He was found to be concealing a sharpened toilet brush. During May 2009, the first records appeared of Jenkins discussing hearing the voice of Egyptian god Apophis telling him to kill children. The Mental Illness Review team described Jenkins as, quote, more manipulative and criminal than mentally ill, end quote.
0: Apophis was the ancient Egyptian deity who embodied chaos and was thus the opponent of light and order or truth. He appears in art as a giant serpent. You will hear us refer to him as God or deity or even his demons, because that's what he referred to them as when he's describing them in discussing his mental health. For the rest of 2009, Jenkins reported hearing Apophis. Dr. Natalie Baker noted after an evaluation that his paranoia about being prisoned and the auditory hallucinations were indicative of a psychotic disorder disorder. Her diagnostic impressions were psychosis not otherwise specified, possible schizoaffective disorder bipolar type, probable post-traumatic stress disorder, and adjustment disorder, also noting a polysubstance dependence. Around September or October 2009, Jenkins was prescribed Risperidol and again depicot, which he routinely took most of the time for about three months. By December 2009, he was completely refusing both medications and the prescription was ceased, despite him confirming his auditory hallucinations had reduced since he had been taking them. During December 2009, Jenkins attempted to escape while on furlough to attend his grandmother's funeral. He threatened and assaulted a correctional officer, and while being questioned about this, Jenkins made a claim that it was the voices making him do it, and that they had control. After a reevaluation, Dr. Natalie Baker revised her initial diagnostic impressions and noted that Jenkins seemed to be using symptoms for secondary gain to avoid legal conviction, and that this behavior was inconsistent with her previous diagnostics. She no longer thought antipsychotics and mood stabilizers were a suitable treatment. Jenkins was transferred to Douglas County Corrections, DCC, to face charges for the attempted escape and assault on February 13, 2010, until July 19, 2011. During his time at DCC, he saw Dr. Eugene Oliveto. This psychiatrist diagnosed him with schizoaffective versus bipolar disorder, grandiose persecutory delusions, Post-traumatic stress disorder severe with dissociative episodes and possible dissociative identity disorder. Antisocial, impulsive, dangerously obsessive. Therapist Denise Gaines saw Jenkins regularly while he was at DCC and described Jenkins' thought process as delusional or paranoid. When Jenkins returned to NDCS on July 19, 2011, he was placed into restrictive housing until July 30, 2013, totaling two years in the isolation-based conditions. During this time, he repeatedly requested to be transferred to a place where he could receive the appropriate mental health treatment. He reported to NDCS correctional staff that he had violent ideation, such as sacrificing children and cannibalism and claimed that he was drinking and snorting his semen and was having difficulty sleeping. Vomit, man. Okay. Okay. I'm a out. In NDCS records, it was recorded that he had begun self-harming right around April of 2012. And the month leading up to his release, Jenkins did not mention or report that he felt like harming others in such drastic ways, he had also ceased in talking about hearing apophis. It was noted in a mental health contact note on July 12, 2013, that Jenkins had, quote, no current mental health issues or concerns. Previous to his release, it is important to note that Jenkins' girlfriend sent a request to the Johnson County attorney in 2013 asking for Jenkins to be committed. He also gave his mother power of attorney to file paperwork to request that he be committed under mental health concerns. When given the opportunity to get mental health assistance once released, Jenkins refused, stating incarceration was his, quote, last chance to get help and that, quote, no animal goes back to captivity after they are released, end quote. On July 30th, 2013, Jenkins was released from prison after serving 10 years on a mandatory discharge. So essentially, really quickly, what a mandatory discharge means, it essentially is basically when an offender has served or earned credit, so they have to release them. Like per law and by statute, they're only allowed to keep them for so long. So they've basically run out of credits. They can't hold him one more day. The only way that this could change is if the parole board revoked those earned credits. And let's say for whatever reason that he earned a whole bunch of credits by working or taking courses or something like that, where you can earn credits in prison. Uh, What could happen is if he were to be released on like some sort of a parole, then in the event that he violated those parole conditions, they could revoke those earned credits and put him back in prison for the duration of those credits that he had previously earned, but have been revoked. So that's kind of what a mandatory discharge means. Jenkins was released at the age of 26 with a full face of tattoos and no knowledge of the way the world on the outside operated since he had not been free for a significant period of time since, get this, he was the age of 11. That's a long time with no freedom and not knowing the way of the world. It's wild. And you would have that expectation. You know what I mean? Society would hold you accountable. You're an adult. You're expected to know these things. You know what I mean? And he completely did not have that. (laughs) He did not have any of those experiences to learn from to develop into an adult on the outside, you know? That's not an excuse for his upcoming behavior. I'm just putting it out there that, like, that would be tough for anybody, let alone somebody with some mental health issues. Um, But an Omaha police chief. His name is Todd Schmatterer said that, quote, Nico Jenkins maneuvered through his freedom by using fear, intimidation and violence to get what he wanted, end quote. And I thought that was really good. It describes him like to a T in just like a simple a few simple words like he would do whatever he had to do, you know, beg, borrow, steal, hurt people, you know, whatever he had to do in order to get what he needed in life because his needs were not met as a child. And so he did. I mean, he kind of you know, was groomed into an offender of opportunity. But I still don't. I mean, that doesn't give an excuse for the violence. You know, if you steal someone's car because you need to get from point A to point B or you steal food because you're hungry or something. Is it right? No. But that's one thing. You didn't have to hurt somebody in the commission of, com- of that fence. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, for sure. No, I get that. Before his July 30th release from prison, Jenkins reportedly had promised his fellow inmates that the world would soon take notice of his exploits, and he made another promise to them, that he would never return. However, his criminal behavior would suggest otherwise. Approximately two weeks after his release, at about 5.01 a.m. on August 11th, 2013, a patrol officer discovered two bodies in a white Ford pickup truck parked near a city swimming pool at 18th and F Street in Spring Lake Park. The two victims, identified as Juan Yerby Peña, 26, and Jorge C. Caiga Ruiz, 29, had been shot in the head and their pockets turned inside out. They were lured to meet two women for a sexual encounter. On August 19th, around 7 a.m., the body of Curtis Bradford, 22, was found outside a detached garage at 18th and Clark Street by a man returning home from the night shift at a convenience store. Investigators arrived to find two bullet wounds in Curtis's back, and it was later revealed that Jenkins and Curtis had served time in prison together and saw each other on the off chance at a party on August 18, 2013, where they reconnected. They had even taken a photo that was posted on Facebook the day before. A relative of Curtis said that their family had warned him about Jenkins, but Curtis just wouldn't listen. Quote, he just got caught up with the wrong crowd, the relatives said. Friends and relatives say that Curtis and Jenkins might have been trying to rob someone the night Curtis was shot. Curtis was planning to study business at ITT Technical Institute. On August 21st at about 2.15 a.m., Andrea L. Kruger, 33, was discovered by a deputy sheriff responding to a shots fired call. Her body was found lying on the road at 168th and Fort Street. Andrea was married and the mother of three. She had been returning home after a bartending shift near 178th and Pacific Street when the suspect and accomplices pulled up in a car behind hers, got out, walked up to the driver's door of Andrea's car, opened the door, pulled her out of the vehicle before shooting her multiple times in the face, neck, and shoulder with a 12-gauge shotgun. The suspect got into her gold 2012 Chevy Traverse SUV and drove off with the accomplices following behind. Surveillance footage showed her locking up At the Deja Vu Lounge at 1.47 a.m., Sheriff Tim Dunning says that Andrea was shot sometime between 1.47 when she closed the bar and 2.08 a.m. when the deputies responded to the call of shots fired. At 6.30 that evening, Andrea's SUV was found abandoned 12 miles or 19 kilometers away in an alley at 43rd and Charles Street. Later that week, a news conference was held by the Douglas County Sheriff Tim Dunning, in which he stated that investigators believed that the SUV had been abandoned roughly two and a half hours after being stolen and that a, quote, feeble attempt had been made at setting the vehicle's interior on fire, so it was mostly intact.
0: There were anxious moments as police and sheriff's investigators worked to build their case. Shortly after authorities began tracking Jenkins, they feared that he was onto them and at one point they thought he might have fled to Kansas City, Missouri, but Jenkins was still in Omaha. Sheriff Dunning said that high-resolution security cameras also helped solve the case. He previously acknowledged that at least one image of Andrea's stolen sport utility vehicle was captured on a surveillance tape. Quote, had this occurred maybe 10 years ago, this might have been a who-done-it. If you can't corroborate what people tell you, it becomes almost meaningless. End quote. Chief Schmatterer said that before Andrea was killed, police were looking into a connection between the earlier unsolved homicides. Investigators had noticed that weapons used in the earlier killings were of the same type. So all of these murders that we have been talking about didn't take place on the same street or even in the same part of town. So to map them out for you. The murders on August 11th took place in South Omaha. The murder on August 19th took place in North Omaha. And the murder on August 21st took place in suburban area of Northwestern Omaha. So it was kind of all over the map. It wasn't like they had one person, one neighborhood, and it was easy to track down. Like it took them a little bit just to make sure that, you know, they had built their case and that it was the same person just all over town. After Andrea was killed, Crime Stoppers began receiving calls about Jenkins. Tips about all four homicides started coming in and authorities began to connect the dots. Deputies were already aware of Jenkins and the fact that he had been released from prison just before the slings. Sheriff Dunning said, quote, he's kind of a well-known guy, end quote. Chief Schmatterer said that once authorities zeroed in on Jenkins and began tracking his movements, they knew the clock was ticking. Quote, he would have killed again we knew it was a race against time, end quote. Jenkins' wife, Shalanda, received a call from him and he was threatening to send his demons to kill her. She called the police to report this threat against her life. While Jenkins claims to not remember saying these things to her, he does not deny them and says that given his history, he probably did threaten her and that he was being controlled by Apophis and his demons. On the afternoon of August 29th, 2013, police surrounded The house near 100th and Birch Street, where Jenkins was hanging out with friends, he emerged from the house and was arrested without incident and charged with terroristic threats. During his initial interview, he accused family members of being responsible for the shootings and did not admit anything. By then, evidence against Jenkins was accumulating, and authorities were working quickly to gather evidence by searching his apartment and the house near where he was arrested, along with running DNA and ballistics tests. Investigators had the image of a female associate on surveillance footage at a local gun outlet buying the kind of distinctive ammunition that had been used to commit the killings. This was the Brenneke Classic Magnum 12-gauge, which is commonly known as deer slugs. Additionally, footage had been pulled from cameras along the route to Andrea's abandoned SUV. Jenkins' sisters, Erica and Melanie, his mother, Lori, and acquaintance, Anthony Wells, were also taken into custody. Authorities also questioned Jenkins' wife, Shalonda Jenkins. Omaha police and Douglas County Sheriff's deputies were attempting to question them as investigators explore similarities among the killings. Jenkins wrote a letter dated July 14th to Douglas County District Judge Gary Randall, who sentenced Jenkins for assaulting a corrections officer in 2009. Jenkins wrote, quote, Goddess Queens, I leave you wealth and royalty in my intellect's brilliance. The kingdom's power I protect with nature of animalistic savage brutality. End quote. Besides the random contents, the letter was striking because of the way it was written. Jenkins wrote his message in a diamond shape. He also attached a picture of a tattoo on his forehead. Also in July, Jenkins wrote a letter to District Judge Shelley Stratman who, as the Deputy Douglas County Attorney, had prosecuted Jenkins for assaulting the corrections officer. He wrote some of those sentences in the shape of a circle. Officials say the letter was mostly incomprehensible, but authorities became concerned because Jenkins called himself a lethal warrior or something similar. He closed his letter to Judge Stratman with something to the effect of, quote, I will see you very soon. That message had sheriff's deputies on alert to look out for Jenkins, their task to keep an eye on him if he ever entered the courthouse. At least one judge had aired concerns about the correctional system's ability to effectively handle Jenkins. In July 2011, at Jenkins' sentencing for the attack on the corrections officer, Judge Randall wrote, The court notes that the defendant requested treatment for his mental health issues. The record in this case would support the defendant's request. The defendant has a long and serious history of mental illness, which inhibits his ability to be rehabilitated, end quote. One court official who handled one of Jenkins' cases acknowledged that he was erratic, but also questioned whether he was playing up his mental illness. Quote, he may have some mental illness, but he knows right from wrong, end quote. I really like the way that that's put just as like a side note. (laughs) He does have a mental illness. They're not denying him that and they're not belittling it, but they do think that he's milking it a little bit and that he knows right from wrong. I think that's a really good way to put it.
1: At Jenkins' first court appearance, the judge denied him bail. After the hearing, relatives of victims Andrea Kruger and Curtis Bradford supported one another and talked about the need for justice. While the victims' families of Juan Uribe Peña and Jorge C. Caliga Ruiz followed the trial, they did not appear in court or make any public statements. Michael Ryan Krueger, which is Andrea's husband, attended Jenkins's hearing and said, quote, It was evil on earth. I needed to at least see him in person, end quote. Two others arrested in the case, Anthony Wells and Erica Jenkins, also appeared in court with the same day for their initial arraignment. The judge set bail at $1 million for Anthony Wells, who was charged with being a felon in possession of a weapon. Erica Jenkins was being held on $350,000 bail in two counts of assault of a confined person charges that grew out of a jail scuffle. Erica, who was also being held on a criminal mischief warrant out of Sharpie County, shouted at court officials as her bail was being set. Quote, why you keep fucking with my bail? She hollered. Douglas County Judge Joseph Canigla asked her if she wanted a muzzle, to which she replied, do you want a fucking muzzle? <laughs> which I think is hilarious.
0: I mean, what was she supposed to say? Yes, please, Judge. Please put a muzzle on me. (laughs) Uh, Do you want a fucking (laughs) muzzle? You right, you right. Oh my gosh, so funny.
1: Handcuffed, she toppled the lectern, which is the podium. The inmates stand near during arraignments. A handful of corrections officers pounced on her and ushered her out of the jailhouse courtroom.
0: So, in several hearings before Douglas County District Judge Gary Randall, Jenkins kept trying to enter an insanity plea. At the same time, he consistently told corrections officers and a judge that he wasn't going to take medication for his mental illness. So, he's claiming he has a mental illness, but he's not doing anything to fix it. So, the judge, in response to that, says to Jenkins at a sentencing hearing in July of 2011, quote, You've chosen not to take those? (laughs) Which is, like, the most obvious and, like, best question you could possibly ask. Like, so you're saying you have a mental illness, we're providing you what you need, and you're refusing to take it? I think that's a valid question. And Jenkins responded quote, because of the hostile environment that I'm currently living in, the medication is to basically kill my adrenaline because when I have mental breakdowns, I become enraged and I lash out on others. So the medicine that they give me, it slows me down and it basically puts me in almost a paralyzing, you know, state of mind, end quote. <sighs> I feel like that's what it's supposed to do, but okay. Okay. Jenkins told the judge that his attack on a Tecumseh corrections officer was a, quote, mental breakdown as a result of my mental disorders, end quote. But a psychiatrist evaluating Jenkins' ability to stand trial in 2010 wrote that he believed the inmate was making up at least some of his symptoms. Judge Randall had ordered an evaluation by a Lincoln Regional Center psychiatrist. On July twentieth, 2010, Dr. Scott Moore met with Jenkins at the Douglas County Correctional Center. He told the doctor that his problems stemmed from abuse, and he said he suffered at the hands of family members when he was young. He went on to say that he heard voices from Egyptian gods. That wasn't all, Dr. Moore wrote in his report. Quote, after a little bit, Jenkins went on to tell me that he was told that he should eat human brains because that's where the pituitary gland was, and it would strengthen him to do so. So what was Dr. Moore's conclusion? Jenkins was faking it. He said Jenkins seemed to have thought out the symptoms beforehand. If Dr. Moore didn't accept Jenkins' symptoms, the inmate would escalate his descriptions, Dr. Moore wrote. Quote, I believe his major diagnosis is antisocial personality disorder, and I doubt the presence of psychosis. End quote. Assistant Public Defender Gary Olson took exception to that, noting that a nurse at the Douglas County Correctional Center had recommended that Jenkins be transferred to the Lincoln Regional Center. The idea that Jenkins, quote, was making up his mental illness, I think, is contradicted by, quite frankly, the number of tattoos on his face, Public Defender Olson said. Douglas County Judge Peter Battalion ruled Jenkins competent to stand trial. Judge Battalion refused to send Jenkins to the state psychiatric hospital, saying Jenkins is aware of what's going on in prosecution against him. Judge Battalion's ruling concurred only whether Jenkins could understand the court proceedings against him. It was not to determine whether he was sane or insane at the time of his alleged crimes. Judge Battalion noted that Jenkins carried on a clear conversation with the judge throughout last week's competency hearing, and he noted that Jenkins was concerned that specific constitutional rights were violated. Quote, this was evidence of defendant's ability to comprehend his rights, convey his reasons why he believed his rights had and were being violated, and to follow the requests of the court, the judge wrote. Judge Battalion said a defense psychiatrist was concerned about Jenkins' ability to have rapport with his attorneys. Quote, however, this court finds the defendant has the ability to assist in his defense if he so desires, Judge Battalion ruled. So at this point in our crime line, two doctors had declared him schizophrenic within the last couple of years. However, three other psychiatrists have suggested that Jenkins is faking mental illness and used it to try to escape punishment. So, on the competency issue, doctors were trying to decide whether Jenkins met a three-pronged test. One, that he understood the charges against him. Two, that he understood the court process. And three, that he's able to actively participate in his defense. Two doctors deferred. A psychiatrist hired by Jenkins, Dr. Bruce Gutnick, said he was incompetent in part because he thought Jenkins would be unable to have rapport with his attorneys And a state psychiatrist said Jenkins is not only competent, but also is crafty, was the wording on that. Then the drama just continues. So Judge Battalion's decision came a day after Jenkins filed a federal lawsuit against the Nebraska prison system that housed him for 10 years before his release, blaming correction officials for four killings. In handwritten letters dated November 3, 2013, submitted to the Omaha World Herald, prosecutors and a judge, Jenkins said he wished to plead guilty to all counts in the four slayings and that he would protect Apophis's kingdom with animalistic, savage brutality.
1: On February 19, 2014, Jenkins filed a federal lawsuit seeking $24.5 million from the state of Nebraska for wrongfully releasing him from prison, stating that his claims of hearing voices from Apothis were repeatedly ignored. In the six-page handwritten filing, he stated that being kept in solitary confinement augmented his schizophrenia. He blamed corrections officials for the four killings. Jenkins claimed that his problems were caused by mental illness and that he had schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and obsessive compulsive disorder. In the handwritten six-page lawsuit, complete with exhibits and references to statutes and constitutional amendments, Jenkins claimed that spending half of his prison time in solitary confinement resulted in suicide attempts and facial scars from self-mutilation. Quote, these state officials failed to protect public safety by not seeking the civil commitment of a dangerous person of mental illness. Jenkins wrote quote, released after July 30th, 2013, Nico Allen Jenkins confessed to four killings, murdering four Omaha, Nebraska citizens in human sacrifice to Apatha's Egyptian war God, end quote. In addition to former corrections director, Robert Hudson Jenkins' names as defendants, a warden, three state prison therapists, an assistant state Obminson, and state senator Ernie Chambers of Omaha. Chambers and the Obminson both tried to get Jenkins' help or a commitment to a mental hospital before his release. Quote, I am seeking monetary damages in $25 million as the four large facial wounds I have suffered have deeply scarred my face for life Yet the emotional distress, pain, and suffering is also lifelong. End quote. Jenkins left a voicemail on a World Herald reporter's phone reading from pleadings in a complaint against Douglas County Attorney Don Klein. Beyond mispronouncing the word interrogatory, He capably asserted several allegations that he thinks should result in the findings that his rights were violated, meaning he was in understanding of what was going on and he was competent. Attorney Klein has said that there is no merit to Jenkins' contention that Attorney Klein improperly revealed that Jenkins had been ruled competent to stand trial in the case. Jenkins seemingly had been stuck on asserting purported constitutional violations, even as his lawyers and psychiatrists questioned whether he is competent to stand trial. On the day of his competency hearing, Jenkins repeatedly interrupted the hearing to assert his claims that his rights were violated. He also reportedly was on a phone call at the Douglas County Jail instructing a girlfriend on how to further arrange for hearings on the filings. After being declared competent to stand trial, Jenkins, by the way, scored a 68 on an administered IQ test. The proceedings against Jenkins commenced. On his request, Jenkins was allowed to represent himself at trial under the guidance of advisory attorneys. Throughout the trial, Jenkins maintained that he acts under the command of Apophis. His courtroom antics included speaking in tongues, howling, and laughing as prosecutors recounted the details of his victim's deaths.
0: In a March 2014 hearing, for once, Erica Jenkins was quiet in court. She refused to answer questions about who provided him with a shotgun. Erica Jenkins at time refused to answer questions about the night of her brother's release after being called to the stand by attorney James Schaefer, who was representing Anthony Wells. At other times, she denied that there was a party or that she or Anthony was there. Then it was prosecutor Brenda Beadle's turn. Prosecutor Beetle slipped on some rubber gloves as she walked up to the front of the courtroom. She took the pistol-gripped shotgun out of an evidence sleeve and carried it within three feet of Erica Jenkins. Isn't this the weapon you and your brother used to kill Curtis Bradford? Beetle asked. Erica Jenkins, who was far along in her pregnancy, leaned away from the gun. One of her attorneys, Sean Conway, barked that she was asserting her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. I mean... To be honest, just as a woman, if I were pregnant and somebody walked up to me with a shotgun and that same person had just slipped on a pair of gloves on their way up to the front of the courtroom, I'd be freaking out a little bit too. So Erica talked over her attorney who was trying to say that she was pleading the fifth and said, that's false. I didn't kill anybody. So I guess she wasn't pleading the fifth. Her testimony came as Anthony Wells stood trial, accused of giving Nico Jenkins the shotgun he purportedly used in some of the slayings. Prosecutors are seeking to convict Anthony as a habitual criminal, which would make his minimum sentence 10 years. Witnesses spoke of a prison release party. Lori Jenkins, Nico's mother, called it simply a family first get-together at the Travel Lodge at 71st and Grover Streets. Sherry Floyd, a 48-year-old girlfriend who tattooed her face at the request of 27-year-old Jenkins, testified that she saw Anthony hand Jenkins a pistol grip shotgun at the motel. But Lori Jenkins called Sherry a liar. Lori Jenkins, who among other things, is charged with providing the ammunition that her son purportedly used in their killings, acknowledged that she and all but one of her five children are facing charges either distantly or directly connected to the slayings. Lori Jenkins denied that Anthony handled the weapon. She said Sherry Floyd is the one who brought it to Nico Jenkins, quote, took it in the hotel and took it out, end quote. All that and more happened at the party, which was attended by some of the women who make up what authorities have dubbed the, quote, cult of Nico, Sherry admitted she took a shower with Nico that night. Lori Jenkins said that, in part, led to a confrontation between Sherry and Nico's wife, Shalonda Jenkins. Lori alleged that Sherry threatened Shalonda with the weapon, an accusation Sherry denies. Sherry testified that Nico planned to move to Florida and commit some robberies there, maybe even go to Cuba to become a mixed martial arts fighter or to join the military so he can fight against the United States, but he never made it to Florida. From the stand, Sherry described meeting Anthony for the first time at the prison release party. She said Anthony handed Nico Jenkins the shotgun, showed him how to use it, and wiped it down with a towel. At that, Anthony pointed an index finger at Sherry in court and called out, You lying bitch! Seconds later, Sherry testified that Anthony handed over two shotgun shells and told Nico Jenkins one was good and one wasn't. Anthony, whom she knew as Tony, wiped the bullets down, according to her quote, why would you wipe bullets down if one is good and one isn't? Anthony called out. At that, Judge Battalion admonished Anthony to be quiet. Anthony's attorney told the judge that his client is innocent. The real culprit, he said, is Sherry, described by attorney Schaefer as a woman who lived, quote, under the influence of Nico Jenkins, end quote. Floyd testified that she met Nico Jenkins in 2009 at his grandmother's funeral in Omaha, the same funeral at which he attacked a prison guard. She said she felt an instant surge and had to leave because she was spooked by it. That sparked several prison visits between her and the convicted robber. Under attorney Schaefer's questioning, Sherry said that she probably gave at least $30,000 to Nico Jenkins while he was in prison. Quote, I honestly can't fathom it. I know it was in the thousands, she said. She acknowledged that she tattooed her face at his request. A tattoo on her forehead carries the word perniciousness or evil. Schaefer said another one of her tattoos translated means I will die and kill for you. That was what Nico said it meant, but it didn't mean that to me, Sherry said. On the subject of tattoos, Sherry acknowledged telling police that the man who provided the shotgun had tattoos on his neck. At that, Anthony pulled down his collar on his orange jumpsuit to show that he had no neck tattoos. Attorney Schaefer accused Sherry of providing the weapon, noting she once admitted that she agreed to give a weapon to Nico Jenkins. Quote, there's a difference between agreeing to and actually doing it, Sherry said. Sherry said that she lives in fear now and that she has had to move because of the case and described being followed once by a man in a car, an incident that prompted her to call the police. Her fear didn't deter her as she cried through parts of her testimony. She testified that Nico Jenkins called out to her after Anthony handed him the gun during the prison release party. Sherry testified, quote, he said, you see what my homie does for me, end quote. So just to wrap up this Sherry Floyd and Anthony Wells little drama story, according to prison records, neither went to prison on these charges. However, Anthony Wells is currently in prison for an unrelated murder. He was convicted in 2017 to a term of life imprisonment.
1: In an early April 2014 hearing, a week after refusing to speak to detectives about any crimes, including the August killings of four victims, Nico Jenkins changed his mind. Jenkins placed a phone call from the Douglas County Jail on September 3rd, telling homicide detectives he wanted to meet and tell them everything he knew about the slaying of Andrea Kruger. Transferred to an interview room at Central Police Headquarters, Jenkins greeted homicide detectives as they walked in. Quote, it's going to be a long night, he said, according to Douglas County Sheriff Sergeant John Pinkerton. I'm going to give you everything you need. The first thing Jenkins said he needed was all the information that the detectives had on the weapons and whether they had been tested in connection with the killings. The second thing he needed was a wire complete with recording devices so detectives could send Jenkins out into the hood and help. Then figure out who killed Andrew because he had street cred, Sheriff and testified, which is hilarious to me. But detectives did not take up Jenkins' offer on that, surprisingly. Nonetheless, Jenkins took detectives on a journey that night, a bizarre narrative that ultimately helped them nab the killer, which was Jenkins himself. Sergeant Pankin testified at a hearing in early April 2014 at the Douglas County District Court. He was questioned by Jenkins, who is serving as his own lawyer and trying to get his confession to the four August killings thrown out. Sergeant Pankin testified that Jenkins initially told detectives that he didn't want to talk at the jail where he had been housed for a terroristic threats charge, quote, because there were too many family members there, end quote. Once at the police station, he got comfortable. Several times, he requested coffee and water. The 27-year-old even took them up on an offer, ordering two double cheeseburgers, a chicken sandwich, fries, and milk from McDonald's. Over the next seven hours, Sergeant Pankinon said Jenkins dominated the room in much the same way he tried to dominate the courtroom. Sergeant Pankinon said that Jenkins paused only long enough to fish for what detectives knew. Quote, pretty much he did most of the talking, Pankinan testified. We just listened. He first accused two young men who were his cousins as the killers, but the truth was soon revealed. Sergeant and told the judge that Jenkins occasionally was emotional, but was always coherent and calculated even clever. Jenkins disagreed. He said that his mental illness Purportedly, schizophrenia clouded his mind and his ability to consent to the interview. Jenkins offered one sign of his, quote, mental illness, that he swallowed rash cream at the jail in an effort to kill himself. Another sign, according to Jenkins, the three, quote, phases... Jenkins says he went through in the interview that led to the confession. Phase one, Jenkins initially acting cocky and strong and ready to find Andrea's killer. Sheriff Pankinen recalled how Jenkins claimed to have a ton of street connections that could help lead them to the killers. Quote, you said you were a powerhouse, Sergeant Pankinen said. Phase two, Jenkins speaking in tongues. Sergeant Pinkenden said he didn't remember any such yammering. However, he said he did remember a moment when Jenkins stood on a chair and replicated how he said he, quote, inflicted apotheos on the men who killed Andrea. Later in the interrogation, Jenkins pointed out he sat on the floor. Sergeant Pinkenden said that was hardly a sign of an irrational loon. Quote, without a doubt, you understood everything that was going on inside that interview room. Sergeant Pinkerton said, I thought you were a very intelligent person, very clever, very wise. Quote, you went on to predict things. You predicted you were going to get a bench trial. You said we should put a lid on this thing. All this blame is going to be put on the Nebraska Department of Correction for releasing him. End quote. Phase 3. Jenkins' bout of emotion. Toward the end of interrogation, Jenkins broke down in tears as Sergeant Pankinan hugged him. That was a sign that Jenkins was distraught, not that he was disturbed. Quote, did you give me a hug and hold my head to console me as a father would to a child? Jenkins asked. Sergeant Pankinan said, I did. Jenkins asked, Why? Sergeant Pankinen said, is the type of person I am. You just confessed to four homicides. I saw the look on your face like you wanted a hug, so I gave you a hug. Jenkins said, what was the look in my face? Sergeant Pankinen paused, eyeballing Jenkins, and said, the look of someone who just confessed to four homicides.
0: Judge Battalion disclosed a rare move, that he met in chambers with Jenkins and his advisory attorneys to answer his questions. In the 45-minute delay before the plea hearing began, Jenkins aired various complaints about prosecutors, police, and jailers. Judge Battalion said, quote, some of these complaints can be resolved by the court. However, I had advised if he pleads guilty, he is waiving all those concerns and complaints. Jenkins told the judge he felt he had no other choice but to plead because his constitutional rights and human rights are not being recognized. Judge Battalion repeatedly told Jenkins that he had other choices. Go to trial, plead not guilty, or plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Quote, the main thing is, I'm ready to go where I'm going to go, Jenkins told the judge. I'm not trying to sit in Douglas County Jail. I don't want to be sitting here going through this little dumb litigation bullshit in this jurisdiction. End quote. Jenkins' pleas were anything but the heartfelt declaration Jenkins vowed to make last fall when he said he wanted to spare the victim's families a trial where they would have to see grisly crime scene photos of their loved ones. Jenkins was characteristically cold during the hearing, laughing briefly and incredulously at attorney Klein's when they detailed the victim's death. Jenkins didn't bring up voices until the end of the hearing when Judge Battalion asked him, point-blank if he had killed each victim. He claimed that, quote, command voices clouded his memory of the killings. He said he remembered that the voices matched phrases that are tattooed on his face. Quote, kill them, destroy them, attack them, he said, which were translating those words. Quote, I was alone, and weapons, and the demons, and Apophis, and Lucifer. They were attempting to kill me, so I killed them under orders of Apophis. None of Jenkins' accomplices relayed any accounts of him claiming to have heard any voices or of him speaking in tongues at the crime scene, Attorney Klein noted.
1: Jenkins initially tried to enter a nolo contendere or no contest plea, but Judge Battalion refused to accept Jenkins' no contest plea, telling the defendant to either plead guilty or go to trial. A no contest plea acknowledges there's sufficient evidence to convict, but is not an admittance of guilt. Jenkins filed a motion to plead guilty to all felony counts in the slayings of the four victims. Jenkins previously indicated a desire to plead guilty only to change his mind. In a handwritten motion filed Friday morning, Jenkins said, quote, I do not wish to go to trial. It is my request to waive a pre-sentence investigation as well as waive the right for a jury to deliberate capital punishment, end quote. Jenkins requested that Judge Battalion issued a final sentence immediately, but that couldn't happen as prosecutors have to present evidence of the aggravating factors that could lead to Jenkins receiving the death penalty. Quote, I accept any penalty of the court that may be rendered upon said defendant, Jenkins wrote. On April 16, 2014, Judge Battalion did end up allowing Jenkins to plea no contest because he was not admitting to the facts of the state's case against him, just that he had committed the murders. Although he allowed him to enter a no contest plea, Judge Battalion found Nico Jenkins guilty of all four murders. Jenkins was initially scheduled to be sentenced on August 11, 2014. The state was delayed indefinitely following a hearing held to determine whether he was capable of understanding the death penalty proceedings against him. On July 29th, Judge Battalion ordered Jenkins to be housed at the Lincoln Regional Center Psychiatric Hospital until doctors were satisfied with his condition. Officials at the Regional Center refused to house Jenkins due to inadequate security but the doctors did agree to treat him at a Lincoln prison. Prosecutors said they will still seek the death penalty for Jenkins, who waived his right to a jury trial on the question whether he should be put to death or sentenced to life in prison without parole. A three-judge panel will instead decide his fate. Attorney Klein said he doesn't know of a Nebraska case in which a person has been executed after pleading no contest to first-degree murder. But, said Jenkins, is not the first defendant to plead no contest and be convicted of first-degree murder. Jenkins dismissively asked the judge if he would notify him of the verdict via mail. Quote, I would like to waive my presence and be notified through letter, Jenkins said. In the next breath, he asked Attorney Klein to consider, quote, taking the death penalty off the table. Jenkins noted that he had written letters before his release asking the judge, prosecutors, even a state senator to help him before his prison release. With the existence of those letters, which have been reported previously in the World Herald, Jenkins suggested that prosecutors would be better off if they didn't pursue the death penalty. Judge Battalion told Jenkins to call a press conference if he wanted to air those matters. The judge indicated that he is, quote, strongly considering appointing an attorney to represent Jenkins in the death penalty hearing. Jenkins leaned back in his chair, smirking, quote, that's only if I care about it, end quote. In May 2017, Jenkins was sentenced to death by a three-judge panel. He also was sentenced to 450 years in prison on weapons charges connected to the murders. On April 20, 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear his appeal. To this day, Douglas County Sheriff's deputies remember little Nico as being barely tall enough to see over-the-counter in juvenile court. Now he's on death row with face tats covering old ones and filing appeals requesting a new trial by way of insanity plea.
0: Okay, before we move on, I want to describe these face tattoos. Um, First of all, I definitely recommend that you go follow us on social media. We'll be posting pictures there. But this guy's face is like completely covered in tattoos. Um, And I don't mean like, you know, those like world record tattoos where every inch of it is there. It's just like a whole bunch of nonsense. And I would almost say that it's like dark ink on his left side. Well, when you're looking at him straight on, I guess his right side and then the left side, if you're looking at him straight on is like, I don't know, what do you think that is like red?
1: Yeah, it looks red.
0: And then he when he came out of juvie and then into adult prison and that's where he started a lot of this, what it all is is like random phrases that he claims mean something to Apophis. So it's not anything that we can tell you what it says. Like, it's just random, like, scribbles almost. But now that he is in prison, and we'll talk more about his mental health here in just a few minutes, but, like, they say he's claiming, you know, that he's a lot more stable now and he has, like, a really good foundation for his mental health and good resources and all that kind of stuff. But it's interesting because now that he has those resources, he still is getting... Face tattoos and these face tattoos are also in dark ink. And guess what they're doing? Covering up his other ones. (laughs) He has like a couple of names that are tattooed like over the top of the other ones and they're like thicker and darker ink because they're newer, right? So it's just like madness all over his face. Definitely jump over to our social media and we'll have this posted for a picture to reference this. But when we describe these face tattoos, like when you're looking at him head on, it's mostly the dark side of it is to his on his right side. When Well, I guess our left side, but, you know, the right side of his face when you're looking at him. But there is still tattooing on the left hand side. It's just like red. Definitely harder to see from a distance.
1: It's definitely like I have nothing against face tattoos, but it's just a little creepy
0: (laughs) yeah there's and there's a lot going on because nobody knows what they mean it's not like he's tattooing you know children's names or family members or you know r.i.p so-and-so or the things you would normally see right or blessed or something like that like it's all random like just i don't even know how to describe them other than scribbles like and we're talking about that he speaks in tongues like it's like he's putting those noises on his face like I don't know how to explain it any better than that so you have to go to our social media and check out this guy's face we'll post a picture of him when he was first booked versus now so you can definitely see not only the age progression but also the difference in his tattoos from then to now
1: so he's a lot and I just wanted to give you the facts of what he has been convicted for and the sentence that that carries out. So the sentence that he's currently serving right now is death plus 450 years for the charges of three counts of murder in the first degree, which the penalty is death. Three counts of use deadly weapon to commit a felony, which is 40 to 50 years consecutive and six counts of possession of a deadly weapon by a felon, which carries 45 to 50 years consecutive.
0: So we did so much research and found way too much information to pack all into one episode, but thought that it would be a disservice to our addicts to leave it out. So we still need to get to his family history, his mental health, and even talk about his interview that was conducted a few years ago. So come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and stay caffeinated.